every now and then um, there's a program on television on the camps and what people call the Holocaust, but I don't think people realize what, what the Holocaust was. And they show you uh, film clips of piles of bodies. And I look at those and I say, which one of those is my father? Is he in that? Or uh, is my mother on the top right there, under that pile? I wonder what sort of life I would have had normally if this hadn't happened. Zalton Zinn was five years old when his family was taken to Belsen concentration camp. He and his sister Edith survived the camp and were among seven children brought to Ireland by Irish doctor Robert Collis. Dr. Collis and his Dutch wife, Han, arrived at the camp shortly after the liberation. The camp was dubbed the horror camp, and it was. It was outside the buildings of Belsen, which was uh, a recuperation place for German officers, a great sort of... Uh, um, German castle, more or less, where they were sent to convalesce. And the camp had been set outside there in the usual barracks. And it was not a, uh, an extermination camp. Uh, it so happened that the Russians were coming from the east, opening up camps, and the Allied troops were coming in from the west, and there were all these transports. Uh, on the road, the Germans trying to get them all out of the way before they were liberated. And it was a transit camp. And then they were completely surrounded from the east and the west by the Russians and the Allies. And they just couldn't cope. And more transports came in all the time. So that finally there were five, six, seven deep on these shelves where, the, where they had to sleep and uh, there was no food, and no more food could come in. And that is how it happened. They, they didn't have them there to gas them. They had a little gas chamber, but I mean, that was just wouldn't make any impact. But it was just a fact they were beleaguered, and nothing could come in or out. And that was it, what did it. Dr. Collis, um joined with the Red Cross and uh, another couple of Irish doctors immediately after the war, or just as the war was ending. And they were led to believe that all sorts of horrible things were being done to the Dutch people. So they duly joined the Red Cross and went along with the British Army to Holland, where they discovered that Holland wasn't quite as bad as it had been made out to be. And they were told to carry on going east, which they duly did. And, in fact, Dr. Collis and his team, as far as I know, were amongst the first people behind the British Army into Belsen, which is the camp that we were in. And with him in that team, there was a Dutch woman, girl, young woman, who was pretty fluent in languages, and they sort of teamed up, and Dr. Collis, being a child specialist, was sort of left in charge of the children's section of the camp. 
Germans are very good at keeping records, apparently, and they managed to get most of the children back to where they came from, with the exception of five or seven. Now, um, this Dutch girl, Han, I think took quite a fancy to me. And at that stage, they couldn't find any immediate family belonging to my sister and myself. It was decided anyway that Dr. Collis would take my sister and myself back to Ireland, along with these other children that um, at that stage no relatives had been found for. Uh, Zoltan was very ill. He had tuberculosis and he had typhoid. Uh, Edith had a touch of the typhoid, but not very much. We really didn't do much about Edith because she wasn't really ill, but this little boy with those beautiful brown eyes was so appealing, we all adored him. And Terry and Susie, I found more or less at the same time, together in one bed, fast asleep. And that again was very beguiling. And that is how I first saw them. The children were brought to Fairy Hill Hospital in Hoth and Dr Collis set about finding homes for them. Zoltan and his sister Edith eventually went to live with the Collises, while another brother and sister, Terry and Susie, were adopted by the Samuels family. My sister and I were adopted into one family, another brother and sister were adopted into another family, and the fifth child who came with us, um, a girl, was adopted by a Dublin family who many years ago emigrated to Australia. Um, Samuels is, is, is the name of the family who ad adopted me and I suppose Terry was the nearest equivalent to my original name. Originally um, the surname was Molnar which I suppose is, is the equivalent of Miller in English and my first name was Tibor. So that, that was the family name and that, that was... In fact my sister actually, strangely enough, the spelling of her name now is as close as one could get to the original. There was a reverend minister, who unfortunately uh, died a couple of years ago, who, who came to Dublin, and once we got talking, I actually discovered that he came from a, a town not 20 miles away from where we were, and he did tell me that apparently I came from a well-educated, cultured, family, whether he, he knew of them or, or he only knew of them um, through acquaintances, but that really is, is the only information that I have on that. Uh, originally, Slovakia, they're messing up the countries now, so I, I don't know what quite what part of it. When I was younger, it was just Czechoslovakia, so I still reckon I'm Czech. It's much easier to say Czech. Somewhere in the mountains, mountain region, I don't suppose we were particularly wealthy. We had what... Um, is nicely called an outdoor privy with a wooden door. And we had an uncle, I think it was an uncle, who was, uh, I don't know if he volunteered, called up or whatever. He was in the army and he had a rifle. And I remember realizing that his rifle could shoot holes through the wooden door of the privy and we thought that was really something. Shortly before we were taken, I remember being in somebody's house and my father painting a wall. He painted a window on the wall, and we thought this was very clever. And eating bread and sugar with a knife and fork. 
Only my father had bread with salt and pepper on it. I'm, I'm not quite sure why. I, I do remember that. I know where the... I, I can visualize the room. I know where the entire family was sitting in the room. I had my back to a door. And my mother was at the far end. My father was somewhere to my left. And my elder sister, because I still had a younger sister at the time, was somewhere to my right. And my brother was somewhere over with my father. I, I, I know that was there. I can visualize the room. If I walked into the room, I would recognize the room. And I thought eating bread and sugar was a grown-up thing to do. I'm <laughs> not sure why. The child uh, is so impressionable. Uh, it takes in everything. And um, sometimes so deeply buried that it will never come out in such a way that they can face it and accept it. You can only accept something you face. And sometimes that has taken a very long time to uh, come out. And some of them coped well, and others couldn't. There were three tier bunks, and there was one bunk per family. We were in the middle bunk. The people above us, uh, recollection, they weren't particularly nice. I don't know quite why I think they weren't particularly nice. The people underneath us, I have no recollection of them at all. I remember the roll call in the mornings, being told to be quiet, and this maybe be quiet, not make a fuss, in case uh, somebody saw you and decided you had more trouble. I remember the song Lily Marlene, which I do not like. It's a nice song, but I don't like it. It sends shivers down my spine because I think they used to sing it before a during roll call. I have just a nasty feeling about that particular song. Initially, the, the family was a mother and father, two boys, two girls. Now, that was the family that was taken. Uh, we were separated from my father, and he was taken elsewhere and, to put it crudely, disposed of. I, I don't know how he died, but he went, he was taken. So that left a mother and four children were actually brought to Belson. An elder sister and a younger sister and an elder brother. In my particular family, uh, what actually came out of the camp at the end then was uh, my sister and myself. I don't think my younger sister actually survived the journey to the camp. Uh, my brother survived to the camp and he survived up to the liberation. Physically, he was in much better shape than I was. Uh, whatever it is in you mentally that makes you survive, Obviously, he didn't have it, because I was a physical mess. But I survived. Physically, he wasn't so bad, but he decided the world wasn't worth all the trouble, and he died. My sister survived. She was the eldest. Well, our mother, as far as I know now, literally died in her arms, in my sister's arms, more or less when the camp was liberated, and was told by our mother to look after us. 
And I think that's probably why she survived. We went out in ambulances and seven-ton lorries. Uh, took us about two days to get there, and when we got to Selle, which was the nearest town to Belsen, and took the road from Selle to Belsen, uh, very soon uh, you were in concentration camp land, and um, there was barbed wire with skulls and crossbones on it, um, warning against uh, typhus which was rampant, uh, and the smell started, and the smell was unbelievable, but then there were thousands and thousands and thousands of corpses lying about, and it was a warm summer. We were talking about, there were about 25,000 corpses on the ground when the troops came in, and then the medical students and the IMC, and when we came in, they died at the rate of about seven to eight hundred a day. And I remember the rejoicing when we had the first day when it was below three hundred, but that was several weeks later. Uh, there were the dead and the dying all mixed up. There was no food. Uh, lice which caused typhoid were, were everywhere. Uh, there were the diarrheal diseases as well. Uh, skeletons all over the place. What do you think if you have all that many people in one place which is only meant for a few thousand, if you have that many and no food and in the end, no discipline either. Uh, when they went into the barracks, you had to be very quiet because in the, at the bottom of, say, five corpses, you might hear a very soft clapping, very faint. There was somebody alive, and that was the only way they could draw attention to them. So then they had to remove all the dead and dig out somebody who was still alive. There was a, this enormous pit. In hindsight, it seemed to me about the size of an Olympic-size swimming pool that we would see on the television nowadays, and very, very deep pit. It was almost full to the top with urine and excrement, because this was the only means of, of going to the toilet. And so those who had an older brother, a sister, or a parent, or some relative could hold on to us while we squatted down to use these facilities. On this particular day, and I seemed to be alone. Any of the other children didn't seem to be around at the time. And this very elderly gentleman, with his back to this pit, who was squatting down, using these facilities, and all around us, all the time, were these foul-mouthed Nazi attendants. 
they were making the most obnoxious remarks at this poor old gentleman. And they drew closer and closer, and I, I could see the fear in his eyes. And they came so close to him, they started to prod him about his body with their bayonets. This poor man lost his balance. He fell in, and he drowned very quickly. The very first procedure when you, we all arrived at Belson was a procedure known as the delousing procedure. And this has to be one of the most dehumanizing experiences that I can recall. From a woman's perspective, this, this was almost too much. We were all stripped naked. You have this cold concrete floor. Overhead are a series of pipes with holes punctured in them. You have foul-mouthed Nazi attendants jeering and generally making very unsavory, unsavory remarks, particularly at the women. And they had trained on us fairly high-powered hoses. So we had to traverse this floor under these frightening conditions. We barely entered this room. In fact, my recollection is the first time that I had seen my, my mother naked. And she's holding my baby sister. Now, now remember, I was five at the time, my sister was one year old. She was holding my baby sister in her left arm. And in her right hand, tiny, tiny piece of soap, a, a minuscule piece of soap, about the size of one that today we would just discard in the rubbish bin. And not being able to balance my sister in the, in the crook of her left hand and trying to hold on to my hand, she slipped this tiny piece of soap to me, which I immediately put into my right hand so that my mother could hold my left hand. And in order that this piece of soap would remain safe, I immediately clamped my right hand with this tiny piece of soap onto her leg. Now, what actually happened was, under these terrifying and frightening and slippery conditions, unfortunately, this tiny piece of soap slipped out of my hand. And my disappointment at having let her down because I didn't understand the significance of this, it, it knew no bounds. I just felt absolutely devastated. In total, we took four of seven. One of them was Evelyn, who went to Australia, and Terry, and Susie, and Zoltan, and Edith came here, and there was another boy who came here, but who couldn't really settle down, and I think he went to Bernardo's in the north, and there was another one whom we didn't really know. He was slipped in at the last moment by the Swedes. He was a Latvian, and he was very disturbed, and he couldn't understand anybody. Uh, I wasn't here at the time. I don't know what happened to him. Zoltan and Edith came here, and they first went with all the others to Fairy Hill up in Hoth, which was um, a place my husband had uh, set up for children with tuberculosis from the 
the back streets of, of Dublin who had nowhere to go and get some fresh air and get some decent food. So they were, he made room for them there So because Zoltan was still on a stretcher. He had a collapsed spine, tuberculous spine, and uh, he, he was still very, very ill. He got tuberculous meningitis, and he was there for quite a long time. Um, and then uh, he looked around and got people organized uh, to see who would adopt him. And the Samuels family, the jewelers, um, they had no, had no children. So they adopted Susie and Terry. And my husband uh, took Sultan and Edith, and they went to school in the Quaker school, Newton School in Waterford. But they did very well because that was a, a very good atmosphere for him to be in. They, uh, they took great trouble and they were very well. As far as I know, it was fixed up again through the Red Cross. We went through Sweden first of all, and we had a bit of a stay in Sweden. I don't remember very much about Sweden. We'd, there was a path and there were tulips growing up the side of the path. I remember that. Red and yellow they were too. Um, from Sweden, then we were eventually through England, brought to Dublin. Um, my back actually, at that stage, I was rotten with TB, as I said, and I had it in the spine. And I was in the plaster class. They tell me I was very sick. I don't doubt them, I'm sure I was. Um, and I was in this full body plaster cast, um, feeling very sorry for myself. We were on the plane, flying from London over to Dublin, and little boys in the aeroplanes get on very well together. I was meant to be immobilized in this cast, but I discovered that I could, with a great deal of effort, rock myself backwards and forwards in this cast um, with the motion of the plane. I found this quite funny. Uh, the medical staff weren't too impressed by it, but I, f I, f I found that quite good. So we eventually landed up in Dublin anyway. Um, first of all, we were sent to Ferry Hill, which was um, what uh, Dubliners would know what it was, I suppose. It was a sort of convalescent home, holiday home for uh, poor people out of Dublin, children. Um, I think one of the reasons we were put there was I was, I was so full of TB, treatment TB at that time was fresh air, amongst other things. Um, no conventional hospital as such could have dealt with me at that stage. Very Hill was all children, open air, sort of running around, having a good time, which was exactly what my sister needed. Physically, she wasn't too bad at all. Mentally, she got a bit of a beating up. Physically, I was a mess, and they thought, again, the fresh air would be good for me, and we could be kept together. No family had been traced. Now, we're talking 46, 47, maybe going on to 48. Adoption laws in this country, then being such, there was no possibility of us being adopted legally by my father, Dr. Collis, because then you had to be the same religion. Now, he was Church of Ireland. We were half Jewish, half Central European Protestant of some shape or form, so that was a no-no for a start. Schooling was called for, and she was, again, um, I gather that she was really too old for this place, um, Fairy Hill. The, you're talking five, six, seven-year-olds, and she was going on eight, nine, too old, really, for there. 
So she was um, sent to Newton School in Waterford. I stayed in Ferry Hill, uh, where I improved and then suddenly disimproved. Um, they produced um, Alexander Fleming, who did the penicillin thing, happened to be in Ireland, and he had a look at me. And I'm proud to say I'm one of the first people who um, was treated for TB with streptomycin, which is one of the main drugs in treating it now. Unfortunately, they were still working on it, and they didn't know what the dosage was. But the, again, the situation was such that dosage didn't really matter, because if I didn't get it, I was gone, one way or another. So, I mean, give me some of it and see what happened. Apparently, they got the dosage right, because I'm still here. But um, I seem to have been lucky in my life. I, I seem to have had the right people around me at the right time. I lived very close to Fairy Hill, and I was always interested in the children there. I had a small school of my own, a kindergarten school, and we used to send toys and things around for Fairy Hill, and also worked in a, a work party that we had for the children's clothes making and mending. So I was sort of mixed up with Fairy Hill. Joyce Barcroft was a kindergarten teacher who lived near Fairy Hill in Hoth. She was asked by Dr. Robert Collis to be a companion to Zalton. He was very interested in everything around him. And he often used to say to me, will I ever have a house of my own? Or do you think I'll be able to do that? I showed him a picture and there was a lovely white cat in it. And Zaltan said, we had a cat once, and then they came and they took us away. Once they told me that they, they made them all stand outside in the cold, and they hid, hid him under a pile of bodies at night so that he wouldn't be found. He remembered that. And for a six-year-old to have to live with those memories must have been appalling. It was so hard to realize just how bad it was because he never spoke, he never said that he was suffering or anything. All that we'd say sometimes was they were very cruel but they didn't really mean to be. And I think that he'd been taught that in, uh, during his time in Sweden, that he'd been taught so that he wouldn't feel better about it. I will now call upon the defendants to plead guilty or not guilty to the charges against them. Uh, they will proceed in turn to, the, to a point in the dock opposite to the microphone. Hermann Wilhelm Wöhring. Before ich die Fragen des Gerichtshofes beantworte, ob ich mich schuldig oder nicht schuldig bekenne, I inform the court, the, the court that defendants were not entitled to make a statement. You must plead guilty or not guilty. My religious upbringing is, is a bit mixed up. Half Jewish, half Central European Protestant, confirmed into the Church of Ireland, married to a Catholic, but educated by the Quakers. Um, Newtown School 
in Watford, which is a Quaker school, co-educational. I think they had as big an influence on me in my life and my subsequent feelings and thoughts on things as anything else. They are very tolerant. Uh, nine years education by them must have rubbed off on me. I have the greatest respect and admiration for them. I don't practice their religion, but I think their views and thoughts have definitely rubbed off on me, of which I'm very glad, because I think they're marvelous people. Um, there must have been a group of, of parents who used to visit us in Fairy Hill, and they used to come regularly, probably once every Sunday when we were first introduced to them, because here was a childless couple who, through the colleges and through Professor Mrs. Weingreen, who had been working for the Red Cross and who knew uh, and was friendly with an aunt of mine, uh, who was a sister of, of my late father, we're talking about now my adoptive family, and they came and they used to take us out for drives, and eventually I, I picked up a smattering of, of English, but they, they were just very, very few words. I mean, when I first went to school here, to kindergarten school, I mean, I, I can recollect I spoke absolutely no English other than odd words here and there, but I learned quickly. And we, we formed a very warm relationship with this wonderful couple and, and their extended family. And ultimately, they, they asked us if we would like to go and live with them on a permanent basis. Uh, my sister, obviously, was, was too young to make such a decision, but I certainly readily agreed. I only had one proviso, and I, I have to say I was pretty adamant about that. And that proviso was that my sister and I would not be split up. And thankfully, they decided to adopt the two of us. My adoptive father sat me down one day, I must have been about maybe 14 at the time, and he explained to me that without a shadow of a doubt, both my sister Susie and myself were entitled to compensation. And, and my father explained to me that it would necessitate both himself and myself going back to Hungary, which was then behind the Iron Curtain. And he felt that the risks were just so enormous that he was not prepared to take the risk that on exit he could come out quite readily, but that I may be detained. And so I've really never gone back. But I have to say that there are all sorts of pressures on me now, possibly by, by, by way of still trying to get some, some form of um, recompense that I may yet have to go back there to, to trace certain records. I went to Slovakia, right in the Tatra Mountains, where um, Zoltan's uh, aunt, Hungarian aunt and Hungarian old, old grandmother, had a small farm and just were eking out a living. Nobody had survived. And they were only too glad to uh, let us take them because they said, we can't give them anything. And that was one of the reasons why we took them, because they really had nowhere to go. Children with mothers uh, could go back home, and a lot of them did, and a lot of them uh, then later emigrated to Israel. 
If they had a mother, they had somewhere. They had uh, an anchor in life. But these poor children who had nobody, what would happen to them? I don't know. It, 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 you couldn't just consider that. You had to do something about it. I'm pretty sure we got a much better opportunity in the material sense in Ireland than we would have had in Czechoslovakia. Um, emotionally, I don't really know. We'd have been, if we'd gone back to Czechoslovakia, we'd have gone back to, say, a granny who is a next generation removed, so he wouldn't be as emotionally attached. Um, the cousins would have been cousins. They wouldn't have been brothers and sisters. Um, the trauma that the entire family and the relations would have had gone through with the experience that we had gone through, I don't think we could have had a normal life back in Czechoslovakia. I think the life we Bob Collins gave us over here was probably much more normal for a little boy and a little girl. Though the beginnings of it were not normal, obviously. But the upbringing thereafter, I think, was much more normal than we'd have had back there. I, I, I think, I, I don't know, but that's what I think. Um, no, I'm not sorry he didn't bring send us back. I think I'm glad he didn't. Um, I think that the Connorses took to the Zins, that's my sister and myself, much more readily than we took to the Connorses. I think they accepted us much more readily. Initially, in the end, um, we had this place up in Calgary. It was a country place where you went out in the morning, you came back to get fed, and you went out again. And if you got a little bit dirty, it didn't matter. It was a marvelous place to go up as a child. And we all mucked about out there, and we did things that any ordinary brother and sister would do. And I'd like to think. And I'm probably right that we were just accepted as another brother and sister. They gave us as good an upbringing as they gave to their own children, which I don't think we could have had in Czechoslovakia. Um, since things have got freer in the past few years, uh, the idea has gone through my mind, would I like to go back? Um, it, it's, it's difficult. Uh, I'm Irish. I said at the beginning, I consider myself Irish, so you wouldn't think it with the accent. Um, I'm married to an Irish girl, woman I suppose she is now, I have four Irish daughters. I was brought up in Ireland, I was educated in Ireland. It, yes, it would be nice to go back, everybody wants to know where they came from. But I don't know what I'd be going back to, I mean, I, I don't know any family over there, I don't know the country, I don't know the language. If I did meet the family, they'd be complete strangers, they'd mean absolutely nothing to me. Um, so it would be interesting to go back as a visitor, but I don't think I'd have any interest in going back to find out about family. I, I don't have family over there. My family's here. They're, they're, while there may have been blood relatives, I, I think there'd have been too much would have gone on through the family to to become close. I, I, I don't know. I don't think I want to go back and find out. I particularly do not feel I have either an Irish accent or a Dublin accent, but certainly if I go over to the UK, um, they immediately say, oh, you come from Ireland. Now, I, I have to say, I don't actually detect that myself, but very certainly 
I, I have um, tremendous uh, and warm feelings both for the people and for the history and uh, let's be honest for, for, for our achievements you know being such a small country as we are. Uh, I see more of Terry and, uh, and Susie than of the other two because uh, Terry and Susie live in Dublin and Zoltan lives in the country and Edith until recently lived in London but uh, yes there was always contact. There was another girl called um, Evelyn Schwartz. She was adopted here in a very nice family, but they took her away after a couple of years and settled in Australia. Um, I lost touch with her, but about six months ago, she suddenly rang me up early in the morning from Sydney, and we had a long, long talk. And she has rang up, uh, rung up since. Uh, she's married, has children, is doing quite well, but she's very, very concerned to find out what happened to her mother. And uh, she has tried everywhere, and she's been to all the authorities that would know, but she hasn't. And she's asked me, but I, I don't know either if she's been to everybody. There is nothing further I can add to it, except that she told me that she was an orphan when I first saw her. And she was, she was alone. Uh, but now that I see these gruesome pictures uh, of Bosnia, it's, it's like a deja vu. I've seen all that before. I've seen all the, the people, the refugees with their pity little um, processions. Um, the old carts, the, the, the old in, in wheelbarrows, people with bandages, children. It is all, that is all coming back. And we're going to be left with the same horrendous resettlement program that we'd really only just had started to solve, maybe about... 20 years ago, and they're going to be just the same frightful traumas. Children are going through the same things again, mothers losing their children, uh, men losing their wives. It, it is the whole dreadful thing all over again. I have absolutely no faith in the world at all because wherever you look on the globe, there is a horrible, nasty, either little or big slaughter going on. I don't think it will ever change. My real family was a mother and father, two boys, two girls. Joe Bloggs down the road has a family the same. For no particular reason that we've been able to fathom, they were taken away and systematically some day, the other day, tried to destroy them. If People could only realize that this is still going on, that a perfectly innocent family down the road who maybe the kids are going to school together and they take the milk off the doorstep together and they meet in the shops and they give a lift down to the supermarket and someday somebody comes along and just takes the whole family away and tries to wipe them out for no reason because then maybe they've got different colored eyes or their hair is the wrong length or whatever. Because... This is what happened in 45, and this is what's happening now. 
We just don't know it. We, we don't want to know about it. And I suppose I'm guilty of doing it now. It's, this thing was going on in South Africa, it was going on in Iraq, it's going on in Yugoslavia at the moment. And we're all saying, yes, but what are they doing about it? And this is exactly what the world said in 1940-45. What are they doing about it? And they, whoever they are, did nothing about it until it was too late. You, you, you couldn't carry off such a, a large-scale operation without the wider world knowing about it. Now, had any world leader highlighted the plight of these hapless people in Nazi Germany at that time, I believe that many millions would have been saved. But we see these appalling pictures daily coming out of Somalia, coming out of Cambodia, coming out of other places in the world. And unless at an early enough stage we say stop and we draw the attention of whether it's the United Nations or other such bodies, and, and I am aghast to think that we're seeing similar happenings again now in Europe, particularly in Germany. And there, for the moment, their targets are the Turks. And unless we highlight this and recognize them for what they are, I'm sorry to say that we will launch ourselves into a another appalling scenario. My early childhood was taken away from us. Uh, our house was taken away from us. Uh, everything which people normally take into their adulthood, the, the wonderful experiences of, of early childhood, uh, myself, my sister, and all other um, children are, are bereft of these. And what has been left behind is a legacy, a terrible legacy, on which we have been asked to try and form, formalize and to build normal lives. And it, it is almost well nigh impossible. And there is a very deep trauma there. I get upset that people forget. You know, we're taught to forgive. Fine, I say forgive. But I also say very strongly, don't forget. And it's the forgetting that we're doing. Kann dich bestehen. 
mein blondes Baby. Vergiss mich nicht, mein kleines Baby. So, so was nicht. Du ahnst ja gar nicht, was du mir Deine Seele ein Baby ist, mein blondes Baby. Oh, hör mir zu, in meinen Träumen bist du. Vergiss 